Greetings again from, from City Light Church over in Adelaide. It is a real joy to be with you guys, this Gospel Church family. Um, and I love that you are a family, that uh, you, you have the full range of ages, all the way from four months, all the way up to 29. Um, I love being in this Gospel diversity it's, it's, it's beautiful. Man, it was such a beautiful morning. We stayed at, at Matt's family place down at Hardwick Bay. Beautiful to watch the sun set and then come up over the water this morning. A real privilege uh, to be here. And it's a privilege even greater to bring this particular psalm, one that's been so powerful and comforting and encouraging for so many Christians throughout history and throughout the world today. This psalm is a psalm about uh, trouble. It's something that all of us are sure to face. We've prayed about some of these things that we are experiencing already this morning. Um, The Bible says you will definitely face trouble. And many of us are likely facing it right now. Maybe it's the trouble of broken bodies. Uh, Maybe it's the the trouble of broken relationships or broken promises or, or, or broken families. I don't know what it is for you, but... All of us face trouble. As I said before, I have five girls who are here, and uh, they know about trouble. They know a bit about getting in trouble um, or getting each other in trouble. It's a favorite pastime. Um, One of my daughters, I won't say which one, when she was very small, very one, one of the things that she liked to do at our house was we had a, a DVD player. So this was before the age of Netflix, which, you know, is a scary thing. Um, she liked to find the button on the DVD player that would open and, and close the, uh, the little drawer where you put the DVD in, and then she would do it over and over again until eventually I, I think the motor wore out on it. And, and so she would get told off for doing that. And it was so, it made such an impression on her that even for everything for the next like two years, anytime she got told off, she had this little speech that she rehearsed in her head of, you know, sorry, mommy, press buttons, DVD, timeout, and she would take herself to timeout. Um, in this world, you will have trouble. It's not one of the, the, the ideas that we often find ourselves meditating on. It, it, actually, this is the, these are the words of Jesus, right? In, the, in this world, you'll have trouble. It's Psalm, uh, John 16, verse 33. Um, it's a promise, but it's not one that we necessarily go to first. I mean, when Jesus first gave this promise, in this world you will, guaranteed, have trouble. Who, who do you think he was talking to? You know, if Jesus was kind of a, like a, a Hollywood kind of, you know, leading man there, he, you might think he was talking to his enemies. You know, if you mess with me in this world, you'll have trouble. But, but he wasn't talking to his enemies, was he? He was talking to his closest friends, to his disciples. He said these words and... Just, hour, just hours later, after he, he said them, his, his body was broken. He was beaten to a, a pulp. He, he, he couldn't lift the cross it was, that he was executed on to carry up the hill. and He was left there to die. And, you know, the, the, those who executed him put a sign above his head and said, you know, this is the king of the Jews. This, this is what happens for anyone who makes trouble in our empire in our world, this is what happens to you. This is the trouble that will come on you if you follow him. Trouble is coming. 
for you. The promise that Jesus gave, it didn't stop with trouble. There was a second part to his promise. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This man who was about to be unjustly, brutally executed said with confidence, I have overcome the world. Jesus said before that, he said, this is why or John in his um, prelude, or he's explaining why Jesus said this. He said, he, Jesus said this because he wanted his disciples and he wanted us to have peace. And he was preparing them for trouble. And so right now, if you have trouble, Jesus is speaking these words to you. He says, I, I want you to have peace. And I'm telling you, in this world, you will have trouble. And you already know that. But I've overcome the world. Take heart. I, I think that if, if Jesus had this Psalms you know, mixtape playing, playing in his head, I think maybe Psalm 46 was right there uh, on repeat. For him when he said these words, because that's how Psalm 46 starts out. It starts out with this idea of trouble and the solution to trouble, the, the thing that brings peace. God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning unpacking that psalm that Shelley read. And it's the foundation of our peace that Jesus wants you to have, because in this world you'll have trouble. So let's see how he is going to overcome the world. So we're going to just walk through Psalm 46. The different sections will be up on the screen as I read. I want you to feel the presence of God, your refuge, as we walk through this psalm this morning. I want you to know that he will increase your joy in the midst of trouble, not just on the other side of it. And I want you to believe that through Jesus, he will be exalted above your trouble. He will rescue you from eternal trouble. So let's start with verses 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its waters water roar and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil. So here's our start. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who's always found in times of trouble. In other translations that like the ESV that we read, a very present help in trouble. I wonder, have you ever memorized that verse? I think I did at one point when I was younger. God is my refuge and strength. It's easier to memorize that, to read those words, than to really believe that. God is my refuge and strength. There's one reason. I mean, maybe it's a guy thing. I think it's probably a human thing. Like, we don't want to admit that we need a refuge, that we need strength. We want to be our own strength. We want to be our own savior. I've come to believe that God is my refuge in those times when I need refuge, when I, when I can't save myself. And you'll come to believe that he is there with you in trouble when you experience trouble. God is my refuge. God is our refuge. God, and not our insurance policies, as helpful as they might be. Not your survival skills or your coping strategies, as amazing as they might be. Not endless information. Not your genes, not other people who can, can't do everything and be everywhere all at the same time. They sometimes let you down. It's God and God alone who is your refuge. And if God's your refuge in trouble, and this is why we don't always love it, love this idea, that makes you, it makes us 
refugees. Where does this image come from in the Bible? If you go back to the days when God's people, the Israelites, were about to go into the promised land that he had promised them. He said, when you go in to the promised land, make sure you set aside a handful of cities. And he called them cities of refuge. What were the cities of refuge? They were the places that were safe zones. If you had accidentally, without intent, had harmed or killed someone, you could flee to those, one of those cities and tell the, the, the elders or the leaders of the city that this is what had happened, plead your case, and they would let you in, and you would hold on to the altar or the safe place in the city, and the, whoever might be pursuing you for revenge or for restitution, they wouldn't be able to harm you because you, had, you were there, you were safe in the city of refuge. And God said, you, when you inherit the land, you have to set these places up a symbol of the fact that God is a refuge. What is it that makes us refugees? What are we running from? If you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, then I, I want to say plainly to you that just like Adam and Eve, our, our first parents, that believe it or not, you are running from God. You're running from God. You're running away from him towards some other refuge that makes you happy, something that you think works for you. Maybe it's your career or success or comfort, or the awards that you've managed to achieve from working hard. Maybe you're just running towards having a good time while you can, um, getting the most out of life before you die. Maybe you're just wanting to be true to yourself. You, you probably can't see that God is the one who sent his own son down to become sin in your place, to forgive you and give you a new heart so that you can stop running and finally rest in him and have the peace that he promises to give. If you're here and you are a Christian, then you're still on a journey. You're still on the journey of being shaped and refined to love and to love like Jesus. The burden of your sin was released at the cross, and now you have a new heart and new desires. And yet, the Bible says we still struggle with sin and, and temptation. We still have desires that pull us away from God and to other refuges. The Bible tells us, therefore, to run away from sin, to flee, especially idolatry or sexual sin. But where do, you, where do you run when you flee from sin? Where, where do you run? I'll tell you where you don't run. You don't run into an open paddock where you're easy prey for whatever's chasing you. Over and over again, the Bible says flee from sin and flee to the arms of God, your shepherd, your protector, your refuge. He says, my arms are strong. And they're made for times of trouble. The Psalms talk about God as a refuge more than 40 times. Why? Because in this world, you will have trouble. The world is broken. Creation is under a curse. Our bodies will eventually die. Satan is an enemy who's trying to destroy you. Sin is still lurking at your door. But because of the gospel, you're no longer a slave to sin. You can still be tempted. But let me tell you, God is your refuge in those moments. 
even when you fail. And here's more good news. See, the Psalms don't tell you that God is going to parcel out strength to you. He's going to pack it like little sachets in your lunchbox and then off you go. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I am your strength. I am your strength. He is with you personally, wherever you go and whatever you face. I want to ask you then, where do you run first when you're in trouble? When you're worried, when you're afraid, when you're in pain? Where do you run first? How do you pray? Because how you answer those questions will tell you what you, deep down, what you believe about God. Is he your strength? Is he your refuge? Do you believe that he is there in your trouble? Do you believe he's able to help? Do you believe that he's able to to act, and do you wait for him? All throughout Scripture, we're told that, you know, there's a, a, a narrative unfolds, something happens, and then, and then the narrator will say, and these things happened so that. These things happened so that people might know. You go back and read the Exodus, all the plagues in Egypt, parting of the Red Sea, and these things happened so that all the people in Egypt would know that I, that Yahweh is God. Over and over again, these things happened that people might know. And it's not just the good things, not just the so-called miraculous things, but, but the tough things as well. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God is the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Everything. And the Greek word there that's translated everything, it means Everything, everything that happens is worked out in agreement with the purpose of his will. Even trouble, even self-inflicted trouble. There's purpose. And so I want to say, though, if you, when you try to zoom in the lens and to your specific trouble or my specific trouble and look for specific answers as to why this, why this diagnosis, why this frustration, why this temptation? We don't often find specific answers to those questions, and that's hard. We wrestle, just like Job did, with this stuff. But instead of looking for answers, if you learn, and, and you learn the habit of looking first for God himself in trouble, you'll discover one of the chief purposes that trouble comes to us at all. I'm going to turn to Paul again. This is in, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's what he says. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our trouble, our affliction that took place in Asia. He says, we were completely overwhelmed. I don't know if you've ever felt completely overwhelmed before. But this is Paul, the, the you know, number one church planner, right? The guy you think that, if God was the genie in the bottle that rewards us for our goodness, you'd think that Paul would have gotten, you know, been at the front of the queue. But here he is saying, I felt completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. We, we thought it was over. We thought we were going to die. And in fact, we kind of wanted to because it was so bad. 
But then he gives this so that clause. Why? So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. What's he saying? He says, God allowed us to suffer to the point that we wanted to die. Why? So that we'd stop running to ourselves for answers. Because we don't know how to raise the dead. God is the only one who knows how to bring a dead person back to life. You think back to your most difficult hour. I don't, I don't know what it is for you. And now think forward to the day of your departure from this earth. Has there ever been a moment when, when God was absent? There may have been many moments where he felt absent, but has there ever been a moment where he was absent? In this world, you will have trouble by design. But take heart, because not even death, not even death can take you from his arms. The psalmist uses more imagery from creation in verse 2 to describe the trouble we fix. God is there in your trouble. He's your refuge. He's able to help. And this truth is meant to lead you to a place of incredible peace. And so in verse 2, we have the therefore. Therefore, because of the reality of God, our refuge around us, we will not fear. There's the peace. We will not fear no matter what. I don't know if you can think about what you might have been afraid of when you were young or what you're afraid of now. Um, maybe you were afraid of the dark or being the new kid. I grew up in the middle of America where there were occasionally we had tornadoes, um, if you've seen them. They would come tearing through. Every community in that part of the world has these loud sirens that they have um, up in the center of town. And they would, every one, once every month, I think it was on like the third Thursday of the month at 10 o'clock in the morning, they would test the siren to make sure it works. And, and you would hear it. And, and you would, it would always be, you would, that, for that split second, you'd have to check your watch to make sure that it was just the test and not the real thing. Because they're scary, these things. I have a memory one time of, um, you know, in the middle of the night being woken up by my parents and having to rush down to the, into the basement of our house. And, and there was this, we had an extra bed down there with a thin mattress on the top that, that you know, we, dad pulled the mattress back, told us to lay down on the sort of the frame of the bed. And then he put the mattress on top of us and then laid, laid on top of the mattress. Couldn't see a thing. It was pitch black. We felt safe in that moment. Dad laying on the mattress. He was our refuge from 500 kilometer an hour winds. If you look at the raw power that's on display there in verses 2 and 3, first there's a description of an earthquake. It's so powerful that the mountains are literally crumbling, you know, like, like, you know, like a pile of sand, you know, just crumbling down into the ocean. And then there's this tidal wave that comes, like a tsunami that comes and crashes up against the very same cliffs that have just been shaken by the earthquake. And I mean, the conditions that are being described here are just really extreme. Uh, I have great respect for people who like to surf. I don't know if that's you. I have tried it a few times myself on those like really big boards for learners and kids, and I still can't do it. I'm not coordinated enough. But I love watching other people do it. Love it. Um, the weather here, the conditions that are being described here by the psalmist, not even the most fearless surfer would attempt to go in the water here. 
on a day like this. Mountains are quaking from within because of the swell. And the imagery here isn't random, because if you go back to Genesis 1, on day 3 of creation, that's the day when God said, let the land and the sea be separate. He separates the land and the sea to create order and separation and predictability. But now here, under the curse, look what's happening. It's the separation between the mountain and the sea is being undone. They're kind of crashing together. It's chaos. It's beauty returning to rubble. Order returning to chaos. And yet, even then, we will not fear because God is there in the chaos. Trouble will come. The devil will attempt and accuse. Affliction will interrupt at what seems like the worst possible time, but he is there. He's your dad on the mattress. He's your refuge. Let's move on to verse 4. There is a river. Its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations rage, kingdoms topple. The earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So now the, the setting is, is shifting here, shifting from the crashing waves at the cliffs to now we're on a city, on a, on a hill, the city of God. This is probably a reference to Jerusalem, which was a city that was built on a hill with the temple at the highest point. And that was the place where God's name, his glory was said to be located. What about the river in verse four? Because there's no uh, actual river in Jerusalem, if you've ever been there. There's, there's no river there. It's quite a dry place. So what's the river in this in verse 4? It's a, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for God's blessing. You find the same imagery elsewhere in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 36, verse 8, where it says, They, meaning the people of God, feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Water that brings delight, that brings joy. There's only one other liquid in the, in the Bible that is described in this way. Psalm 104, and it's wine. Wine that brings joy to human hearts. Here in Psalm 46, it's just plain water from a stream that makes glad the city of God. Why? Because of the one who provides it. It's coming straight from the source of all delight. And because he delights to give good gifts to his children. And so when we receive those gifts, what do we receive? We receive delight. If you fast forward to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, you see the very same river. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And we get glimpses of this now in the midst of our trouble. If you're a Christian, you have his Holy Spirit living inside you. 
who Jesus describes as what? A fountain <coughs> of living water. The water of delight. The water that makes you glad. More than the best wine that you can taste. In the midst of trouble. And it's not stagnant water here, this river. It's flowing. It gets deeper and deeper as it goes. So no matter what trial you're facing now, the river of light delights gets deeper and sweeter the closer you are to seeing him. The more trouble you experience, the river gets deeper and sweeter. One day, you and I will die and we'll see him face to face. And if you're a Christian, then we know that you will reign with him forever. The curse is gone. There's no more trouble, no more tears. And friends, he's already overcome death at the cross. So you can have joy now. He will overcome the world. So your joy only increases as you get closer to seeing him face to face. We come back to the here and now in verse 5. God is right now. He's here with you, even in times of trouble, especially in times of trouble. The city, it says, it can't be moved. Now, what does that mean? doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to God's people. Nothing can touch us. Is that what he means? I don't think so. Because in the very next phrase, it says, he will help us when? When the morning dawns. See, there was bad stuff happening at night. It was scary. It was dark. And God comes in and he helps people when, he needs, when they need his help. So the unmovable city here is not a picture of people who have some sort of bubble around them that nothing bad ever happens. It's a picture of people who in the midst of a storm, in the midst of darkness, never cease to hold on to God. Always just hold on to faith. They won't let go of their refuge. Even when everything is bleak, relationships might be fractured. Opportunities might be lost. Career goals out the window. Even still, it's well with my soul. That's the city that doesn't move. I won't be moved because my refuge, my delight is not in my stuff. It's not in my opportunities. It's not in my how many friends I have at a given moment. It's not in my comfort. It's not in my physical health. My delight is in the one who never changes. The one who overcomes. Morning is coming and when the smoke clears, and we get walk out and take stock, what you'll see is that he's been there through the night, through the storm protecting you the whole time he's overcome. Verse 6, the psalmist turns from the chaos in creation to chaos in humanity. He talks about nations and governments and all these human power structures that are fighting with each other, raging against each other to ultimately destroy God and his people. See, these kingdoms are built on shaky foundations. They won't last. The only city that lasts is the one who's built on the foundation of faith in Jesus. The one that doesn't move. So much of the idolatry and sin and temptation that we, we are subject to in the world would be destroyed if we understood this. All the kingdoms and the treasures of the earth that we have stock in now, 
even this beautiful country that we live in, even one day Australia will not be a country anymore. And, and we don't long for that to be the case. We pray for, for, for prosperity in this country and for revival in this country, but it's not a guarantee. I, um, I, uh, before we moved back to Australia four years ago, our family, we lived in, in China, in East Asia, um, working with the church there. Uh, I spent time mentoring young Christian leaders who could not be pastors openly. And in the last couple of years, many of those leaders have been snuffed out. They've had their leases canceled. They've had contracts canceled. They've lost jobs. Their churches have lost venues and been forced to meet outdoors in parks um, because no one will leave, no one will rent to them. Um, but their faith in God was not moved because their faith in God was not dependent on having a nice building to meet wasn't dependent on being safe. It wasn't dependent on not being under threat of jail or other kinds of persecution. Their faith in God was fueled by the joy of knowing that their sins have been forgiven and that their hope is in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. Look at verse 7 and 11. It's kind of the refrain. If this was a, well, it is a song. This is the chorus. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's the theme verse of this psalm. Lord of hosts is another way of saying he's, he, he's the commander of the armies in heaven. He doesn't just lead his people in battle, but he, he surrounds them. He's our safe place. When he's in our midst and we are in him, no scheme of the enemy or his servants will consume us. And, and that's true wherever we are. Whether we're singing in church, whether we're at home with family, hanging out with unbelievers at work, sharing the gospel with an unreached community, he is there with us. He's our fortress. Some people have said that this psalm, Psalm 46, was Martin Luther's personal favorite. Certainly served as the inspiration for his most well-known creation, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress. The third verse of that hymn starts like this. It says, And though this world with devil's filth should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. In this world, you will have devils or trouble. But take heart, because God has already overcome. He's already decided the outcome, and you don't have to fear. You might walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but he is with you, and he will increase your joy, because that's what he does. He makes us glad. He gives us reason to sing darkest of moments. Verse 8. Come and see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes war cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. Stop your fighting and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Exalted on the earth. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. God is there in trouble. He takes away your fear. He increases your joy in trouble. But now let's look at verse 8. Here is a direct plea to you and me, the hearers. Come and see. Come and look. Come and see what I've done. It's like Christmas morning. Kids, come down. Look. Look at the presents under the tree. 
The original audience for this psalm was God's people living in the promised land. They were in Jerusalem, and they always knew that they were one battle away from being wiped out. One battle away from being wiped out. And so here in the final stanza, God is going to transport us from, we were at the seaside, seeing the waves crash, then we were at the, in, on the city on the hill. Now we're going to be up on the walls, the fortress walls that are around the city, looking out. That's our perspective now. That's where the soldiers would have stood to watch for enemies that were coming to attack. And as far as you can see, as far as we can see, all the enemy soldiers are dead. They're defeated. There's no, no threat. No army can defeat the Lord of hosts. The works of God that he wants you and I to behold are both terrifying acts of judgment. He uses the word desolations. He brings desolations on the earth. He destroys his enemies. And they're also definitive acts of redemption. In verse 9, he puts a stop to wars. He, he breaks the weapons of war. And in short, God, unlike earthly rulers, is so completely sovereign that he's the ruler, not just over the people within the city, within the walls, but he rules over the people outside of the walls as well, over every nation. God is there with him, and he's meeting out his grace as he sees fit, and he lifts up rulers, and he, and he brings others down. He allows some cultures to flourish while others languish for a time. Why all that so people everywhere would reach out to him because he's not far from any of them? that they would find the God who is there. If you look at verse 10, it's probably the most well-known verse of this entire psalm. Most, trans most translations of the Bible have this verse in quotation marks, indicating that these are the direct words of God. This is God speaking. This isn't the psalmist. And he's talking to us. He's talking to those of us. We're standing up on the walls, taking stock of the land outside the city, and he's talking to us, and he says, look, Look at what I have done. Relax. Stop worrying. Don't be afraid. Stop fighting. Be still. And know that I'm God. I'm in control. I, I'm not just of the laws of nature, but I'm in control of the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That I created. I'll be exalted out of the chaos. Just rest. Be still. No, I am God. I will win. I will be exalted in the earth, even among the nations that hate me. So is this verse, this be still and know, is it just a verse you need to recite when you're having a bad day? You're stuck in traffic and you're just like, be still and know. Is it something, is that what it's for? Kids are really driving you crazy. Be still. Is that what this is for? I think it's important for us to remember that God is at work in the minor details of our lives. But this verse invites us to take a look at the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. 60 seconds here of biblical theology. See, after Adam and Eve sinned, after Adam and Eve sinned, God inaugurated a plan to save a people for himself, to be with the people that would be with him and enjoy his blessings forever. And despite the overwhelming wickedness of humanity, by grace, he chose one man, Abraham, and he blessed him tremendously. And he said, you will be a blessing. All the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So Abraham had a son, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob. 
It was called Israel, and, and they had descendants. And then 2,000 years later, the one that everyone was waiting for was born, Jesus, the son of Abraham. How did Jesus fulfill the promise that all the peoples on the earth would be blessed through Abraham's family? Well, Jesus answered that question for himself, and we find it in John chapter 12, verse 32, where he says this. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus was lifted up from the earth by wicked men who nailed his body to a cross. He willingly submits to death, to a humiliating death, that was a foreshadowing of the ultimate exaltation, the ultimate lifting up that was to come. And because he was lifted up, because he was exalted on the cross, therefore, Paul tells us, God also highly exalted him. And he bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All peoples on earth, blessed by the lifting up of Jesus, the Son of Abraham, the Son of God, all according to plan. So get up on the walls and look at what he has done. And then stop worrying. Stop fighting. Be still and know that he is God. He has been, he will be exalted in all the earth in the midst of our trouble. It's a battle cry. It's the, this, is, this is the gospel here. God is who he says he is. He does what he says he will do and every eye will see it. Every knee will bow before Jesus, either as his, as his enemy in submission or as his child in worship. Stop fighting and know. God is with you in trouble. He increases your joy in trouble. And through the cross of Jesus, you can know that his kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now you have a testimony. You have a message to preach to yourself and to share with others. That because of the work of Jesus, all those who believe in him will be forgiven. No longer enemies, no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. And here we are standing on the wall. We've seen it. We know the gospel. We see the enemy's dead. We know who the king is. And we can shout back to the people in the city and say, Jesus is better, as we sang. Jesus has done it. Total victory. We can shout this message to the people both inside the city and outside the city. Those who have no knowledge of God, who have no access to grace, no awareness of their fate outside of Jesus, stop fighting and know that he is God. He's been exalted on the earth. He will be exalted in the new creation to come. He will be exalted in the midst of your trouble, and he will give you peace in your trouble. So stop your worry. Know that he is God. Know that Jesus, the Son of God, was exalted outside the city walls, just as the scripture said he would be. And that his blood are the waters of the river that flow, that make glad the people of God. And now is the time to turn to him and be rescued from every trouble. Let's pray. Father, you know the troubles that we face. You know every detail. Please, God, stir our hearts and help us to hear your word. 
there is anyone here today that has not trusted in you, then draw that person to yourself today. Help them to taste and see that you are good. Be our refuge from all trouble, a present help. Show us the love that compels you, compelled you to give the life of your son on the cross that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to you forever. Lord, may our hope be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Be our mighty fortress today. Welcome us into your refuge, into your fortress by grace. Help us to stop worrying and know that you're God. Save us and preserve us for glory, we pray.